We began our study of Job last Sunday. In the first chapter, the stage is set, and we are told of three main characters, at least in the first chapter. Job, who is described as blameless and upright, he feared God and shunned evil, is a man of great wealth. He's also a man with ten children, seven sons and three daughters. We're also told that there's a reality that we cannot perceive. There's the council in heaven. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. So we are told of Job. The second that we're told of is of God himself, someone who delights in his creature Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Then the third character that is mentioned is Satan, or the accuser, the cynic. Someone who is restless, who is roaming back and forth on the earth. He epitomizes the nature of evil, that of alienation, aimlessness, and anxiety. God delights in Job and presents him to Satan. Look at this, my servant Job. And Satan's like, yeah, I know better than you do. I can see to the heart of things. And Job fears God because God gives him everything. Does he fear him for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread over throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan says to God, I know better than you. This is the nature of the Senate. And so the first test is allowed. The Lord said to Satan very well, then everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. So we read of the day of loss in which Job loses everything. The calamities sort of go back and forth between the heavenly forces and earthly forces. There is uh, the lightning, there is the east wind, we have the Sabaeans who are raiders, we have the Chaldeans. They come from all four points in the compass. And Job loses everything. And his response? I think we need to ask ourselves, how would I respond if I lost everything? Well, let's not even do that. How do I respond when difficulty comes into my life? At this, Job got up, tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job acknowledged the reality of his losses. He didn't say, oh, that's, that's really nothing. There was, in fact, great sorrow here. We should not be unaffected by difficulties that come into our lives. But we should restrain ourselves and not lose control. Because we read... In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He did not point the finger at God and say, you did this and you are wrong in doing this. As we saw last week, when the temporary is taken away, the permanent still remains. Job acknowledges that God is in control. All things in life come from him. Calm as well as calamity, prosperity and poverty life and death. 
Job acknowledges that everything he has, his material possessions, his children, these all come from God. And as such, they belong to God first, not to Job. Job does not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. As we saw in the first chapter, in his prosperity, Job does not forget to praise God. And in his poverty, he continues in the same vein. Um, I think, I mentioned this last week, that we are more prone to forget God in our prosperity than we are in our poverty. So Job passed the test, but Satan is not finished. Now we come to chapter 2. We read of the second test, and we meet four new characters. Follow along, if you would, as I read uh, the first seven verses. On another day, the angels, or the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered, From roaming throughout the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. In the first part here of chapter 2, we find almost a word-for-word repetition of what we found in chapter 1. And the character of each of the three parties is reinforced. Job is, in fact, a righteous man. And God delights in him. And Satan, ever the accuser, ever the, the cynic, will not buy it. He thinks that if you, if you do certain things, Job will be found to be a fraud. That in fact, he only worships God for the benefits of it. We are told it's on another day. Chapter 1, it's one day, but here it's another day. We're not told how long this is after Job lost everything. In fact, we're not really given that time frame. We simply know that that first test has finished and Job has lost everything. Satan comes in again as an intruder. The angels, the sons of God come, and Satan also. He doesn't belong there, but he comes. And God again responds by delighting in this man, Job. I think we should be very clear about this. God says he maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him. God takes full and personal responsibility for what happened to Job. He's not pointing the finger at Satan. It is God who is in control. And it's a critical point because in this book, Job will seek deliverance from God alone. We don't even know if he knew of Satan. We see, as I said, that God delights in his creature who maintains integrity. And Satan will not buy it. Skin for skin. This is really a saying, an expression that is unknown to us. Uh, 
it may mean that the first test was superficial. Yeah, you took everything, but that's, that's really not the important test. Or that Satan wishes to touch Job's skin. That if his person, if his skin was touched, and we were told that he has boils, then Job would curse God. It could be that uh, Satan is saying the test was only skin deep. Let's get down to his bones and then we'll find the real man. The second proverb is clear to us. A man will give all he has for his own life. That is, take all he has, he will still survive because he has his life. But strike his flesh and bones and he will curse you. Again, God, who delights in his creatures, allows Satan to do this work in Job's life. You must spare his life. You can touch him, but spare his life. And as he did in the first chapter, Satan does a good job, a total job on Job, afflicting Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. I want to point out something, though. It's really important in verse number seven. Satan is mentioned 11 times in the book of Job. This is the last time Satan will be mentioned. After chapter 2, verse 7, we don't hear of Satan at all. He doesn't enter into the dialogues. He's not mentioned once in the various monologues. No one talks about him. The issue is God, the character of God, and Job, and his character. I remember someone saying years ago, it is almost insulting how little ink Satan gets in Scripture. And yet we tend to make him the boogeyman, that you know, he's the one who does all these things. God is in control. And in this book, that's what we find. So Job has, in fact, been afflicted with sores. And we read, Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. We're not sure what Job had. Some have suggested, well, he had boils, obviously, but some have suggested leprosy. Symptoms are mentioned throughout the book, that he had open sores, that he was disfigured. His friends did not recognize him. We'll see in verse number 12. He had maggots in the ulcers. That's mentioned in chapter 7. He could not sleep, loss of sleep. He had nightmares. He had depression. In chapter 30, he had fever. And he had blackened and peeling skin. I would suggest that it isn't simply one disease or one condition. As we saw that Satan came in from four directions to take everything that Job had. I think Satan isn't just saying, okay, I'll give you boils and then you'll curse God. I think he hits him with everything that he can. Job responds by sitting in the town dump. He sits among the ashes. In the ancient world, this is outside the town. This is where you would put ashes. This is where you'd put the garbage. Uh, Feces, the dung, would be put there and burned. It's the town dump. It's also where lepers would stay. It's the only place that they're allowed near the town. It It represents, I think, total humiliation. From the greatest man in the east to a man who now sits in the ash heap. He scraped himself. We're not sure quite what this represents. Is he scraping off scabs? Uh, Is it because he has a lot of itchiness? I think extreme itchiness. Um, Was he reflecting sorrow at his condition? 
and marking his flesh. Something, by the way, that's forbidden by God's law. Now we have a new character, and that is his wife. Enter the wife, verse number 9. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This woman, who is unnamed, she's simply Job's wife, has been maligned throughout history, through church history, as the second Eve, the one who tempts her husband to curse God and die. Calvin, John Calvin, condemned her as the embodiment of Satan. We don't have Satan anymore. We have the wife. Augustine labeled her as the devil's advocate. But I think we should reconsider our harsh evaluation of her. Obviously, the bond, the identification between husband and wife is very strong. And to see her husband suffer as he is. By the way, she's suffering too. She lost 10 children as well. To see her husband go from the top to the bottom and to be in such pain is more than she can take. Years ago, um, I asked someone because I grew up with Ilocano. That was the language that um, they spoke in Baguio. And unlike other languages in the Philippines, which have a lot of terms of endearment, Ilocano doesn't seem to have any. It seems like a very unromantic language. So I asked somebody one day, an Ilocano speaker, um, what word do we use? You know, what is the term of affection that one would use, us, a husband for a wife or a wife for a husband? And the answer was, Bianco, my life. Job is her life, and she sees him suffering, and she can't take it. So she wants him to die, at least to be in peace. And how do you die? You curse God, and then God will kill you. I take this as a statement of faith, by the way. She doesn't suggest, hey, Job, just kill yourself. No. She knows that God is in control. And if, in fact, Job, Job does something, that God will kill him. But this is foolishness, Job tells her. Shall we accept good from God and not accept trouble? And he retains his faith in the Almighty. And Satan is foiled. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy that the secret things belong to God. Faith is learning to trust God in the dark when we cannot see what is going on. On some level, we can only watch as Job suffers. But on another level, we can struggle with many of the same questions. How to keep our faith and dark experiences together. At this point, let's be clear about something. We should not we cannot study the book of Job in a cold, clinical, analytical, detached manner because we worship the same God that Job worshipped. And God allowed horrible things, horrible things to happen to Job. What we find in this book is not ready-made answers. You go through difficulties, this is the reason why. This, these are the answers that you seek. We don't find that in the book of Job. 
We don't have ready-made answers. But the book of Job does allow us to ask hard questions in difficult times. And this is what we find in the rest of this book. Now, three more characters are introduced, the three friends. Look, if you would, at verses 11, 12, and 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Like Job, these three friends are not Israelites. They're not Jews. They don't belong to the covenant people of God. But they do worship the true God. They believe that he is the creator, he is the judge, and he is righteous in all that he does. This will be a recurring theme as they try to scold and correct Job. Eliphaz is from the south, the city of Teman, which is in... uh, Edom. Bildad is from uh, Shuha, which we think may in fact be in modern day Iraq near the Euphrates River. And then Zophar the Namathite, uh, that's between Beirut and Damascus. So from the north, the south, and from the east. The word for friend in the Old Testament has several meanings. One is a counselor. The other is a party in a legal dispute. The word in Latin for friend is amicus, and you may have heard, you know, when people go before the Supreme Court, people will present an amicus brief, that is a brief by a friend, someone who is party in this dispute. It also means a very close friend. And in the ancient world, in certain cultures, friendship would be solemnized by ritual, covenant ritual. They would pledge, they would promise to take care of each other, in all types of circumstances. In many ways, you have vows almost like what you have in marriage. But this is what friendship is, that they say this is what we're doing. The example we have in Scripture is that of David and Jonathan. And we are told Jonathan made a covenant with David. Then he said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of our Lord. It's not a small thing saying, the Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. We are friends and we have agreed, we have sworn in covenant ritual that we are friends and not simply for us, but our children and their children and so on. At least three times in the Bible, Abraham is called the friend of God. In James chapter 2, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Let's not make the mistake of meaning that, yeah, they were, they were close, that they were buddies, they were pals. C.S. Lewis calls it celestial chum. No, they had entered into covenant relationship with each other. I think in our culture, we tend to think of friendship or being friends as something that happens naturally. You meet someone, you have similar interests, and you just sort of click, and you become friends. But there's no sense of obligation, and there's no commitment, oftentimes. 
There is no verbalizing, I'm going to be your friend, and this is what it means to me to be a friend. When you are in need, I'm there. And I trust that when I'm in need, you will be there for me as well. This is the kind of friends that Job had. When we get to chapter 6, Job will accuse them of not living up to their covenant relationship. He says, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams. Calls them brothers. At some point in the past, we don't know when, these men who don't live next door to each other have become friends and, in a sense, have entered into a very special covenant relationship. But at this point in the story, they've heard about what happened to Job, um, which, by the way, this, this makes me think that you know, when he lost everything, it must have been perhaps months in the past. And now they've heard about his physical suffering. They may not have actually heard of the suffering, maybe just his loss. But they agree, somebody from now southern Israel and then from Syria, from Iraq, Somehow they communicate. They don't have cell phones. It takes a while for this. Somehow they agree they are going to meet together and they're going to see Job and comfort him. But when they see him from a distance, he's in this town dump. They hardly recognize him. They weep aloud. They tear their robes. They sprinkle dust on their heads. This is, in the ancient world, a traditional sign of grief. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. So one writer noted this is one of the most moving paragraphs in the book of Job. And while they got so much wrong, as we will see in the weeks to come, they got this right. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. They identified with Job. I would remind you, we don't know what Job had. We don't know what he had. And it's no stretch of the imagination to imagine that, in fact, he was contagious. It's like, well, Job, you, I don't want to catch what you have. But they sit there with him. I would remind you also that he's sitting in the town dump. We can safely assume that these men were somewhat like Job, men's, men of means. They must have had money to be able to travel in the ancient world, to travel long distances to meet up with Job. And yet here are these three rich men sitting in this town dump with their friend Job. They identify with him in his disease and in his disgrace because they are his friends. We find two important things here, presence and silence what some have called the ministry of presence and the sacrament of silence. A well-known writer uh, tells of a time when a friend of his, what his friend's mother, had committed suicide. And this is what he writes. As often as I've reflected on what happened in that short space of time, I have remembered how inept I was in helping Bob. I did not know what I could or, sh- or what could or should be said. I did not know how to help him start sorting out such a horrible event so he could go on. All I could do was be present. But time has helped me to realize that this was all he wanted, namely my presence. For as inept as I was, my willingness to be present was a sign 
this was not an event so horrible that it drew us away from, all, from other contact. Life could go on. I now think at this time God granted me the marvelous privilege of being a presence in the face of profound pain and suffering, even when I did not appreciate the significance of being present. It is something simply to be present with someone who is in need. It is a service, and it is a service of vulnerability. They are risking their reputations, sitting in the trash. They are risking their lives. We don't know what Job has, but they are with him. And then we have the sacrament of silence. I could spend a lot of time on this. I think it's a wonderful expression. I'll just say briefly, we live in a culture that does not appreciate silence. We are a culture of talkers. We have talk radio. People want to talk. And we find this in contrast to what the scripture tells us. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. And Proverbs 17, a man of knowledge uses words with restraint, a man of understanding is even-tempered. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Reminds me of the saying, it's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. But we like to talk, don't we? James tells us, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I would suggest in our culture we've reversed that and given the opposites. We are quick to become angry, quick to speak, and very, very slow to listen. There is, in fact, a discipline to listening, and thus a discipline to silence. Job's friends were silent for seven days and seven nights. Could you do that? I, I don't know that I could. I don't think I could. Not a word was said to him because they saw how great his suffering was. By the way, one of the reasons that we like to talk is because we think we know way, way more than we do. We think that we know the right words to say. And God may in his grace give us the right things to say. Uh, but sometimes words are not necessary. They very wisely are silent for seven days and seven nights. Now we come to chapter 3 and the silence is broken. After seven days and seven nights of numbed shock, and Job has been suffering far longer than that, Job breaks the silence himself. He's not an animal. He has emotions. He has thoughts. I would say that, that nothing in chapters 1 and 2 prepares for chapter 3. It is a primal scream. Out of the depths of his suffering, Job cries out in anguish with words that border on blasphemy. He spits out his bitterness, he shouts his doubts, and he sobs his wish for death. Who knows what was going through Job's minds from the time that he lost everything to the time when Satan afflicted his flesh. Perhaps Job thought his friends might have some words for him to answer his doubts and to share his despair. But for seven days and seven nights, they say nothing. Maybe, 
and it's a, it's a big maybe, they're simply waiting for him to die. But Job erupts in anguish and anger. Look at the first two verses. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, and then it goes on in verse number three, both the form and the language of this curse are exceptionally difficult for us in the modern world to grasp. The point is clear, um, but it's, it's just really difficult. By the way, I would point out again that from this point on till we get to the last 11 verses, it's all poetry. It's all in verse form. Satan told God, if you take away everything, he'll curse you to your face. Didn't happen. Satan said, touch his body and he will curse you to your face. And it doesn't happen. Job does not curse God, but he does curse something the day he was born. To curse the day of one's birth is not something we hear today. We have heard people say, I wish I'd never been born, or I didn't ask to be born. Not the same thing. In a culture of profanity, I think we fail to appreciate the depth of this curse. Job's friends and his contemporaries would have felt horror at hearing what he had to say. This is, in fact, a mighty curse. Job lived in a time when words were seen as having power. I don't think we think that. That's why we talk so much. But words have power. Once they are uttered, they cannot be recalled. And they set in motion forces beyond our human control. Just a a little background before we go on in chapter 3. This is not the first speech. Job isn't sort of making his case and then his friends will respond. They will, in fact, respond. But Job isn't trying to make an argument. Rather, he is expressing his sorrow, his deep, deep, profound sorrow. And he desires that God, in fact, would give him relief from his suffering. We see this in verse 13 as well as in verse number 26. It sets a stage that Job's friends will then try to comfort him by challenging and seeking to correct him. This chapter is a curse as well as a lament. Um, we will see it in two parts, um, verses 3 to 13 and then 14 to verse number 26. Each section consists of 26 lines, each. Look at verse, thir- uh, verse 3. We'll read it to verse 13. May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow, here we have of death, has been added, claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me, to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? 
Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. As I said, Job does not curse God, but he curses the day of his birth, the night of his conception. The two moments together make up his origin. And Job is saying much more than, I wish I had never been born. He wishes that the day of his birth will no longer be a part of the calendar, that it would be removed from the calendar. As long as the day of his birth continues each year, his existence also continues until his death. Better that that day had never been created by God, then Job would have never existed because that day would be gone. The only way to have that day removed from the calendar isn't to get a calendar and mark it out with a black marker, okay? Is to have it removed from the yearly cycle. And the only way to do that is to have a counter-incantation, an anti-creation, if you wish, a counter-creation incantation, a spell designed to turn cosmic order into chaos and to have the light of day turn into darkness. I mentioned this last Sunday, that the doctrine of creation is foundational to the wisdom books. In Proverbs, we see the order in creation. There's a perceived order in creation. In Ecclesiastes, the order is completely confusing. And in the book of Job, it is hidden. But they believe that God is the creator. Job's curse is the reverse of what we find in Genesis chapter 1. And I think it's quite deliberate. Okay? Um, my birthday, as you know, is February 12th. Um, someone in the modern world, if they were to copy Job's curse, would say, may February 12th cease to exist. That on every human calendar, you go from February 11th to 13th, and that day would cease to exist. How do you do that? Well, you go back to creation when God created the world and make sure that that day is taken out. So, in day one of creation, let there be light. Job says in verse number four, that day may it turn to darkness. Not light, darkness, okay? So that's one way to get rid of it. Day two, so God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. This is God personally involved. Verse four, the second part, may God not care about it. Day four, let the lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. That night may it not be counted among the days of the year. Day five, so God created the great creatures of the sea. Verse eight, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, the great sea creature. Let us make man in our image. Day six, why did I not perish at birth? And then day seven, the Sabbath day, God rested from all the work of creating all he had done. It would be better if God had not created that day, for now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. As God is resting on the Sabbath day, if I'd never been born, if that day is cursed, I would be at rest. If Job's curse works, then he will never have existed. He never would have lived. And then this means he would have never suffered all the things that he had suffered. The second half of the chapter is a lament. 
If we were to put it into one word, it would be why. Look, if you would, at verses 14 to 26. With kings and councils of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil. There the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the greater there, the slave is freed from his master. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I have feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Beginning at verse 11, which is the first part of this chapter, we have a series of questions. Why did I not perish at birth? Why did I not die? I came from the womb. Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Then it continues, why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant that never saw the light of day? Verse 20, why is it that those who want to die keep on living? Verse 23, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? In this amazing chapter, we are taken into Job's heart and to feel as much as we can feel his anguish. We should remember the words of Jesus on the cross in the same vein. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse number 25 to me is the key to the whole book. What I have feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. What is it that Job feared, that he dreaded? I would argue it's not loss. He does obviously grieve for his children. It's not his bereavement. It's not his physical condition. It's not his wife's tempting words. What is it that Job has feared? It is that God is not who he says he is. That God is a liar. He hasn't told the truth. In Job's present plight, God is silent. And if God is there, why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he say something? We may want our friends to comfort us with silence. The sacrament of silence. Just be present with us. Job's getting neither from God. No sense of his presence, no, no word from him, only silence. And Job wants God to be present. Job wants God to speak, and he doesn't. Job is trying desperately to get his experience and his faith to come together. What he has gone through with what he believes. 
He wants his faith to understand, to interpret his current condition. He cannot understand why God has allowed this to happen. That is to say, Job's knowledge of God and his ignorance of God's ways have come into conflict. Job thinks he knows God, that God has revealed himself to him. He knows something of God, but he cannot understand why the God that he knows would allow this to happen. What we know of God's goodness, what we do not know about the mystery of his purposes, are headed for a collision. It is an unbearable tension. Job knows that his life is in God's hands, that God is a good God, but his experiences are now pulling him in the opposite direction. It's almost impossible for him to see that God is good. In his current situation, it's hard for him to see that. The God that Job is experiencing appears to be more of an enemy than a friend, more darkness than light. As one writer put it, it almost drives Job mad that he encounters God in a form in which he is absolutely alien. I thought I knew God. I thought I knew him. But now I'm not so sure. What would you say to such a person? What does your theology, your doctrine, say about someone like this? How are we going to keep believing in God in the face of suffering and difficulty? You need to ask yourself, are you believing in your beliefs or are you believing in God? Do you trust God? Do you believe in him in the face of great darkness? In the face of impossible suffering? How are you going to reconcile the presence of God when he seems to be absent? You say God is present, but he seems to be absent to Job. I think we should take note that there are two possible solutions to Job's problems, which he does not entertain. They are the easy ways out. The first, his wife suggested, curse God and then God will kill you and then you'll be dead. The other is suicide, which never comes up as an option in the book of Job. But this chapter, chapter three, we are almost there. We are on the brink. Job saying, I wish, I curse the day that I was born. It's not simply, I, I wish I had never been born. I cursed that day. And it would have been better if I had never been born. Well, his friends have been silent for seven days and seven nights. And now they speak. And the Lord willing, in the next few weeks ahead, we will look at what they had to say. The issue is, is God present or is he absent? Is he a good God or is he a liar? You know, when things are going well, this seems like, boy, how, how, how could you dare to ask such a question? 
when you go through dark times and difficult times, I think you begin to understand. There are times when it seems that God is absent. We don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, while he's allowing certain things to happen. We're not given easy answers, but we will be given a vision of God in this book. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Job. And we thank you for the man Job. Someone made in your image whom you delighted in. And yet someone you allowed to suffer great loss. To suffer horribly. We want answers. And as we go through this book, we will find that we're not given answers. But we are, in fact, allowed to ask the questions. In difficult times, may we trust you. When things happen that we don't understand, may we trust you. When things are going wonderfully, swimmingly, may we trust you. May we be friends like Job's friends, at least as we see them in chapter 2, willing to be present with someone in need and willing to say nothing, not imagining that they have the answer, not imagining that they can say, oh, I know exactly how you feel, but they're with him, and we thank you for their wonderful example. I pray that in the weeks to come, you would guide us in our study. As these men try to present answers to a question that is not answered. I pray that you would guide me as I prepare sermons. And open up the book of Job to us. We like to imagine that we understand you. You are the infinite personal God. We are finite, fallen, broken people. May we be humble enough to recognize that. And by your grace, trust you. I thank you for this day, the beginning of a new week, and ask that you would keep each one of us safe and in good health. Pray for Lonnie, and the blood test tomorrow for a good result. Give the oncologist wisdom. Pray for Gwen, she goes back to work. For Ori, Ariza, and others, you would keep them safe. May you use this pandemic but we also ask that you would remove it. Thank you for loving us and caring for us. May we have a sense of your presence 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.